When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Rachel. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we discuss the aftermath of the new Brexit agreement, and you ask us about Keir Starmer's missions. All eyes are on the Democratic Unionist Party now, following the government's announcement of the Windsor framework. This is the new EU-UK agreement on trading relations between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We won't go through all of the details of how that changes the trading relationship, because I'm sure our listeners will have caught up on a lot of that. But we want to know what happens next. So the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, he's been fairly nuanced in his response to it compared to stauncher figures in his party and also the harder line voices of the traditional Unionist Voice Party. And the Tory Brexiteers' response as well has been generally quite positive. There was glowing coverage in the right-wing press that are usually trying to make trouble for Rishi Sunak and support Boris Johnson's line. Although some MPs, some Tory MPs are saying that they would only vote through this new arrangement with the DUP's backing. So we're waiting to hear what they say. Donaldson has said it will take as long as it takes. Freddie, is it a triumph anyway for Sunak, even even if power sharing doesn't return to Northern Ireland, just because he's managed to sort out this legal framework for implementing the protocol without creating the huge divisions in his party that his predecessors have? Yeah, definitely. I think you have to recognise, first of all, that it is a much better deal than what Boris Johnson got. That's why people are quite positive about it. And also, it's something that many people thought that the EU wouldn't concede and was actually seen as an impossibility. More broadly, I think we've got to recognise that this is a massive improvement in the EU-UK relationship. I think it's the biggest improvement since 2016. It's really changed the tone, the tenor of that relationship. And you're going to see that bleed through into other policy areas. We've already seen the EU start talking about the UK joining the horizon in scientific research program. It means some MPs, I think this is quite hopeful, but some MPs are now pointing towards whether this will help the UK government get a deal with France. We've got the French uh, UK summit coming up soon on the small boats crisis in the channel, that is. So there are broader implications of this deal beyond the politics. But I think you are right that Stormont now is where all eyes should be focused. We already know that the deal is probably going to get through Parliament because Labour have said that they're going to support it. I think the ERG is really important in terms of party unity and whether the deal you know, comes across well to Tory party members and things like that. But we know it's going to get through. So I think I should really be on the DUP and on Stormont and, and how they react and whether they will return to the executive. Yeah. And what is their incentive for returning to the executive? Because, of course, if they did so, then they'd risk riling up some of their more hardline base. And also, of course, it would mean a Sinn Féin first minister. Yeah. And that's one of the main considerations that's been on their mind for a while. And then also we've got the groups like the TUV and other parties who are on the right of the DUP. And there's, there's local elections coming up and other pressures on them to take a hard line. A few people this week have pointed to the fact that the Stormont break, which is a part 
part of the deal which gives Stormont, the Northern Ireland Assembly, some sort of veto, although it's reliant on the UK and there's still ECJ jurisdiction, all these things. So some sort of veto, some sort of say on whether EU regulations can come into effect in Northern Ireland. That is only implementable if Stormont's sitting. So that's one incentive. But also, I think more broadly, and this is the key thing with Northern Ireland, we have to recognise that when there is no government, decisions aren't being made. The NHS in Northern Ireland is one of the in one of the worst states in, throughout the country. So there's lots of consequences for there not being a government. And that's probably the main thing that'll be playing on the mind of MLAs. Yes. And the only way that Rishi Sunak or any other Tory minister can claim that they're true, proud unionists is if they're working towards getting power sharing back up and running because of those reasons that you say. I think I've said it on this podcast before, but I was once speaking to an academic who's been speaking to people on low incomes across the country about what their main asks would be from government. And one of the top was getting a Northern Ireland government back, which we forget what this means for the day to day lives of the people living there. Rachel, does this nevertheless, you know, bolster Sunak standing in his party? I mean, whatever happens next, he has shown that you can do old fashioned diplomacy, having a warmer relationship with the EU, perhaps fewer noises off to the press and actually get something out of them that perhaps many people who have been long time commentators on the Brexit negotiations thought that the UK government wouldn't be able to get out of them. I think that's absolutely right. I think it can be chalked up as a significant achievement for Rishi Sunak. It's interesting that they're talking up quite a lot the the way that the EU was prepared to do a deal with Rishi Sunak as opposed to Boris Johnson, because they obviously they're saying that's because the EU felt they could trust Rishi Sunak an awful lot more. They felt like his government was a lot more stable than Boris Johnson's and a lot less divisive in that he's willing to set aside the Northern Ireland Protocol bill, which would have unilaterally pulled out of all arrangements in Northern Ireland, basically, if the UK didn't get what it wanted. So I think Rishi Sunak's quite happy for people to make that comparison with Boris Johnson. I think we're still waiting to see what Johnson's response is. And the Times is reporting this morning that he will be critical of the deal, but ultimately be prepared to back it. And I think that's quite telling because, and that does really empower him because that's been the sort of story of his premiership, this Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak rivalry. And I think if he can have vanquished his fall, whatever you think of Boris Johnson, he's a very effective campaigner and he's certainly still attractive to an awful lot of Conservatives. So I think if Rishi Sunak can say that he's defeated Boris Johnson in some way, then I think it will go on to empower him massively. Yeah. And does that make it tricky for Starmer? I mean, a lot of his attack lines are based on the idea of Sunak being weak. And he actually said in a recent PMQs that he was sort of in hock to the malcontents and wreckers on his backbenches in terms of trying to hammer a Brexit deal through. Does it mean that they have to slightly recalibrate their attack on Sunak? Or is it, as Freddie, I think you've written, not something that's necessarily going to capture the imagination of voters in Great Britain, even if, you know, globally, it's been seen as quite a significant development? And now we can turn to the politics of it. And the politics aren't as big and large as the deal itself. I don't think it's going to have a massive effect on Rishi Sunak's standing. He might get a few points for competence, being an effective leader. It might help his approval ratings a little bit because before they said he had this aura of aimlessness that he couldn't really get rid of. And now he's actually achieved something. This is also the first achievement of premiership. However, the brutal truth is that most people in Great Britain do not care about Northern Ireland. Yeah. And we've seen that as a trend throughout the Brexit campaign. We've seen it since. Since then, it's not been at the front and centre of people's minds and polls are showing that people wouldn't be that bothered or increasingly wouldn't be that bothered if Northern Ireland left the United States.
United Kingdom. So I think in terms of people's perceptions of the government, this, is, this won't make a massive difference. The key thing for people at the moment, and we've spoken about this a hundred times, is the economy, it's inflation, it's the NHS. These are the things that are going to dominate the next election and they're, they're playing on people's minds. It's not trade negotiations with the EU. Yeah, and actually I've heard from a source privy to Labour's relationship with the EU that actually they'll be pretty happy that this this deal was done before they potentially come into government next time because they've gotten it out of the way and then they can focus on the other things that they want to do to further improve the UK's relationship with the EU. And that wasn't someone from Labour telling me that, so it's not just spin. Rachel, what are you hearing? Well, I think we've already reported that the Labour Party or a Labour government will be prepared to do sector-by-sector deals with the EU. And I think... That's something they would think of in the longer term. I know that they've been doing an awful lot of work with its sister parties in the EU and further afield, thinking about how their governments are working, what measures they're putting in place, what kind of subsidies they're offering in terms of industry and green power going forward. So I think all those things are worth worth taking into consideration. Mm. Freddie, will they have to drop the line that Sunak's week? I think they'll definitely have to drop it this week. And I thought PMQs yesterday was the least exciting, least interesting, least important one we've seen in a while. Sunak was much more strident. He had a buoyancy about him. Starmer wasn't as effective and that's fine. I think it was just that was a pause on normal politics because we had this overarching constitutional news. More broadly, though, I think for Labour, they're going to have to drop the make Brexit work slogan. Maybe they'll keep it, but it's not going to be as prominent as it has been because obviously the main problem, the main thing that they were talking about is now been fixed or will be fixed. But having said that, it was never that front and centre for them anyway. I think they said, as Rachel points out, they said they want a closer relationship with the EU on many different things. That's always been their policy. But they weren't going to vote us. look, if you elect us, we're going to do this. It's not. It relates to what we were just saying. It's not the key thing. Instead, Keir Starmer's taken the language of Brexit, the emotion of Brexit, and turned it into something to do with devolution through the take-back control bill, completely unrelated to the EU. That's wise, because as, as we always say, as people didn't vote for Brexit because of trade negotiations or veterans agreements or anything like this? I don't know if they'll necessarily be dropping make Brexit work because I think there are still wider concerns about how Brexit's been hitting the economy and there'll still certainly be no shortage of criticism from people who campaigned for Remain and are very committed to, to, to getting the UK to be as close to the EU as possible. So I don't think they'll necessarily drop that slogan, but I think they'll probably use it in a more broader sense, I suspect. Yeah, and, and we can't forget that actually certain things that are happening day to day in our lives, sometimes tangentially, sometimes directly related to Brexit. So I've been writing this week about the shortage of salad vegetables in our supermarkets, which is actually something that EU officials were discussing behind the scenes, thinking the British public may be distracted by the deal from the shortage, but it's likely that it will carry on for weeks just because our supply chains have been disrupted by Brexit. You know, it takes longer to get those kind of products over the channel than it used to. All right, let's move on to the next section. After the break, we'll discuss our listeners' questions about Keir Starmer, his missions and his many speeches. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. 
It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. Us. So we've had a lot of questions about Keir Starmer's missions this week, which nicely coincide with the cover story of today's New Statesman, an essay by the man himself taking us through his five national missions, which he announced in a speech that happened just as we were recording last week. So we didn't actually get to speak about them. So for our listeners who missed out on that, here they are. Secure the highest sustained growth in the G7. Make Britain a clean energy superpower. Build an NHS fit for the future. Break down the barriers to opportunity at every stage. Make Britain's streets safe. So, Freddie, why don't you, because you wrote about this in Morning Call, you went through the main bits of his essay for us. Why don't you tell us a bit about the top lines? Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you look at the missions. When he spoke last week and outlined them in a speech, there was lots of criticism because people were saying, okay, we've only got two metrics out of five. We've got the clean energy by 2030 and we've got the G7 metric. And everyone was like, what the other ones are so vague? What does the create opportunity mean? What does make streets safer? The key thing to understand with these missions, and as Starmer set out in the essay for the magazine this week, is that they're going to announce each metric and each specificity for the missions by the end of the summer. That's the time frame. So what the Labour have done very wisely is that they've taken, which in effect is their priorities for the next manifesto or the next election, the subsections of a manifesto, and got six months or so, or six speeches out of it, and lots of media attention, and they can hear it around the idea that they're going to be a mission-led government, which points to Keir Starmer's key theme, which is that Westminster's much too short term, needs to be much more focused on the future, and they need to be thinking and looking five or ten years down the line. Okay, and so they're doing speeches off the back of the speech then? Yeah, there will be. Each of those will have a speech. We had the Economy one on Monday and he set out what they want to do. And the other thing to note is that when these speeches happen, you're going to get some of the policies that have already been announced over the past two years come under certain headlines. So we're going to see the coherence of the package emerge over the next few months. Mm -hmm. And so let's go for that first one, the highest growth in the G7. They did that speech on Monday. It's slightly overshadowed by the Brexit deal that we were just talking about. But, you know, what are their main policies to achieve that aim and is it a bit of a is it a bit of a risk making a pledge like that when you might not be able to pull it off yeah, I think I guess there's some who say it might leave you as a bit of a hostage to fortune. I think I think some people have already made that point, but they've linked it to some of the policies, as Freddie says, are already announced, which are some of these devolution policies right. generating growth in all parts of the country, their green investment pledge, and you know their more willingness to make Britain a sort of trading economy. So they're using some of the policies that they've already announced. But I think one of the things worth reflecting on when thinking about this whole idea of a mission-led government is that there are a lot of people, like for Ed Balls, for instance, who said this is not a set of priorities that are listed as like retail mm. policies. And he felt that they were a little bit, he didn't quite say vague, but he said not specific enough. Mm. And I just wonder if this is maybe what some of Labour are wanting us to come to the conclusion of that they're trying to communicate how they want to be different at governing, how they don't want to make it about short-term priorities, as Freddie said, and try to make try to encourage people to view them as as different in terms of not reacting to events day to day and encourage people to view them as like stable, building a longer term mandate. 
Yeah, that's so interesting because I, I heard from someone within Keir Starmer's team that he is sincere about this kind of doing politics differently stuff, emissions rather than, you know, just retail policies a few weeks before an election, for example, as you were just saying, Rachel. And they described him as a bit of a boy scout about this stuff. Very earnest, wanting to change the way that we do our politics and make things work and feeling a bit shocked about the way Westminster works. And there's a lot of mention of sticking plaster politics in that essay that he wrote for us that he's mentioned before, which is this idea of, you know, coming up with quick fixes that sound good to voters that don't actually bear out in the long term or aren't based on the best evidence. And the problem is here, I think, even with the phrase sticking plaster politics, we don't call them sticking plasters. In I was just about to say, who we? uses that term? Yeah, never, and, as a plaster. And that's, I think that's a sort of wider symbol of the lack of... I mean, you could say that I'm being glib by saying this, but there is a little bit of a lack of sloganeering here. You wouldn't remember <laughs> from reading that piece that he's written for us or perhaps watching that original speech, sort of one line that stands out to you make Britain's streets safe. In part because we're going to get the big crime speech in the future where they are going to specify the policies and what have you. So to, to be fair, I don't think we're yet there with the other three promises. Rachel, is there a problem that it doesn't sound catchier at this stage? Yeah, although when you hear that sort of phrase, sticking plaster politics, I mean, get what's the opposite to that? It's something more long term. Is that kind of some kind of byword for investment or spending? Is it them trying to build a mandate to increase public spending to a certain degree. In terms of slogans, it's moving away from that, isn't it? The piece that he wrote for us, was it's not full of like catchy little phrases. One of the most interesting lines in it, I thought, was when he started to talk about leadership and he said he didn't want to be a populist and he didn't want to be a technocrat. And then he went on to talk about taking a different approach, went through again this kind of familiar story about how his father was a toolmaker about his own career, his own story of social mobility. And that's something that you've seen Albanese do in Australia, to, you know, communicate their politics through their own personal story and then put that front and centre of their campaign. So I think that's, that was one of the interesting things that struck me about the essay. Yeah, I agree. And the focus on the word respect as well, I thought was mm. interesting, something that our editor, Jason Cowley, pulled out more in his column that sort of came alongside that piece. In the leader's office, because they say it that much, it's yeah. starting to become known as the R word. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But yeah, he's saying that he's taken inspiration from Schultz on talking about respect. And he did that speech about his father being a toolmaker really centred around that concept, which I did also find really interesting. So sorry to have lowered the tone of our discussion by <laughs> focusing on slogans, but we do get asked about it by our readers. <laughs> yeah, no, it is important. I thought there was some other interesting lines in there. He said people in this country, they feel in invisible in their own country, and that's something that he wants to address. I saw one commentator say that sounds exceptionally UKIP-y. And <laughs> I'm not, I don't think it does, but it's interesting that's how it's been interpreted by some people. I went to see Michael Gove speak last week in Westminster at the Onward Think Tank, and he gave quite an impassioned speech I think he was trying to set himself up as the talisman for the communitarian part of the Conservative Party. And I saw it as the beginning of, you know, a battle for the soul of Toryism going forward in the next 10 years or so. Because if the next election does go as badly for the Tories as the polls predict, then you are going to most probably have Sunak leave his position and the Trussites and all the factions within that party try and fight for dominance. Anyway, the reason I mentioned that is there were a few occasions, I think maybe some of the points that Michael Gove was making about identity politics and culture warriors and all this sort of thing couldn't have been made by Keir Starmer but everything else that he said 
I could have seen coming out of Keir Starmer's office, the stuff mm-hmm. about antisocial behaviour, the stuff about devolution, the stuff about moving high-paying jobs out of the southeast, the stuff about making people have respect and a sense of a pride of place and yes. in, in where they come from. Is there an emerging consensus here between some parts of the Conservative Party and some parts of Keir Starmer's Labour? And I think that was a really interesting moment to get those two speeches come at a similar time. That's really interesting because you hear it from the other side as well. Some in Labour who may be a bit more sceptical of Starmer's leadership saying mm. that some of it sounds a bit big society sometimes, you know, that old David Cameron <laughs> Cameron's idea. heartfelt. Yeah. yeah. So there does seem to be a little bit of crossover, though, of course, that it would be executed very differently between those two emerging sort of groups within Yeah, I think because people recognise that the problems in the country are are the same. You might have different solutions to those. Both Gove and Starmer spoke about childcare and they might do it for different reasons. Gove might be speaking about childcare for the ideology of family and tradition and the nuclear family, whereas Labour might be talking about childcare in terms of personal freedom and these sorts of things. But there's the agenda there. The problems that we have identified and as within the country are shared by others. Then you've got people like the trust sites who say, okay, actually the problem with this country is that we've got high taxes. That's something else. That's another agenda. It's a different consensus. So the question, therefore, I think is, how is this battle within the Conservative Party going to play out? Who's going to win? And then that's going to shape the politics. If we do get a future Labour government, that's going to shape the politics at that time. Thanks so much for all your questions, which we had to roll into one this week. But if you'd like to submit a question for us next time to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Freddie Haywood and Rachel Wimouth. We'll be back on Monday discussing the politics of childcare. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by May Robson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.